I'm going to start by telling you a little about a woman called Elisa Zinovievna Rosenbaum. Now, you've probably never heard of her. She was born in 1905 in St. Petersburg in Russia. After she emigrated with her family to the United States later, she changed her name to Ayn Rand. And I suspect that some of you have heard of Ayn Rand, maybe most of you haven't. She's not generally well known in the UK, though amongst some groups of people, she is a significant, even revered influence. For example, at the end of October 2013, Goldsmiths Hall in the city of London was packed with several hundred bankers, economists, political advisors and business leaders to hear the annual Ayn Rand lecture organised by the Adam Smith Institute. And the talk was entitled Ayn Rand More Relevant Now Than Ever. And the audience heard a Danish investment banker, Lars Christensen, argue that the world is on the wrong track. And he concluded, Ayn Rand is the only answer. And the audience responded enthusiastically. She died in 1982, but as you've noted, as I've noted already, her considerable influence lives on, and her influence is even greater in the United States. So in the 1990s, a survey conducted by the United States Library of Congress named one of Ayn Rand's novels, Atlas Shrugged, as one of the most influential books in the United States, second only after the Bible. Paul Ryan, in 2012, was the Republican vice presidential candidate in the United States presidential election. He's a prominent member of the United States Congress. He prepares the Republican Party's budget proposals. And he says Ayn Rand was a major formative influence on his thinking. Alan Greenspan in the United States was from the late 1980s for 20 years the head of the United States Federal Reserve Bank, probably one of the most, if not the most, important economic institution in the world. He was a friend and admirer of Ayn Rand. So who was she and how is she relevant to a talk on the gift relationship. Well, she wrote several novels in the 20th century to promote her philosophical views. They were no, her philosophy was known as objectivism. I can never get a handle on it, but she, her novels are well known. She has a particular significance for us and for this talk because she viewed altruism, generosity, as a disease as a disease that is incompatible with freedom, with capitalism, and with individual rights. For her, altruism was a kind of a primitive social instinct, left over from our earlier evolution as humans. She held the view that we may still be in evolution as a species, and living side by side with some missing links. And these missing links could be found, she thought, in those people who fail 
to utilize their rational selfishness to its full potential. She deeply believed that each man must live as an end in himself and follow his own rational self-interest. In the novel Atlas Shrugged, her hero John Galt exclaims, I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live for the sake of another man, nor ask another man to live for mine. And her conclusion was that if any civilization is to survive, it is the morality of altruism that men have to reject. So it's difficult to imagine a view more completely opposed to everything that Buddhism stands for. The Buddha exhorted his disciples to go forth for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the welfare, the good and the happiness of gods and men. Giving is central to the Buddhist path. We know this and I will return to look in more detail at Buddhism and altruism shortly. But first, I want to take a look at how generosity and altruism are viewed in economics to see whether economists share the same perspective on altruism as Ayn Rand. We know that some influential figures do, but what about mainstream economists? And to tackle this, I'm going to talk about a book called The Gift Relationship. The title of my talk comes from this book. Published in 1970, written by Richard Titmus, a professor at the London School of Economics, the book compared the blood donation systems then existing in the USA and in the UK. Blood donation in the UK, then as now, relied on people giving blood voluntarily for no financial reward. Blood was given as a gift. Donations of blood were then used for unknown strangers who received the blood at no charge. The UK system existed outside the market rules of economics and relied upon altruism, a spirit of generosity. Blood donation in the United States relied very much upon commercial blood banks that paid donors for their blood and then sold their blood on. The system in the USA was market-based and relied upon monetary transactions. So what did he find in his study when he compared these two systems? Well, first of all, he found that the quantity and the quality of the blood donated in the UK was higher than that in the USA. In particular, the quality of the blood in the USA was poorer because in a market for blood, those who had the greatest incentive to supply it for money were those often with the unhealthiest blood. Drug addicts, alcohol addicts and so on. You have to remember in those days, the testing of blood was much less well developed than it is now. People lied about their medical condition in order to give blood and make money. That was the first thing he found. But the second thing he said was this. 
he had a deeper objection to the commercialization of the blood donor system. He believed that the commercialization of the blood donor system eroded the spirit of altruism and generally diminished the propensity of people to give to others. In this way, the gift relationship in society was undermined, something which he very much regretted. What he feared, what Titmus feared, was the general erosion of moral values in society by the crowding out effect of market values through the process of commercialization. By eroding opportunities for people to be altruistic, the culture of giving would be diminished and others would have fewer examples of altruistic behavior from which to learn. So this was his conclusion. It did not go unchallenged by economists. One of his main critics was a, a distinguished and American economist called Kenneth Arrow. And reading his criticisms, it's noticeable that he relies upon two basic assumptions about human nature that economists tend to great, take for granted. So the first assumption is that commercialization does not change people's propensity to be altruistic. What he argued was this. Commercialization means that those who wish to buy and sell blood can do so, whilst those who wish to avoid the market and prefer to see blood as a gift can continue to do so and give blood for nothing. In this way, he said, everyone gains. He said this, economists typically take for granted that since the creation of a market increases the individual's area of choice, it therefore leads to higher benefits. Thus, if to a voluntary blood donor system we add the possibility of selling blood, we have only expanded the individual's range of alternatives. If he derives satisfaction from giving, he can still give, and nothing has been done to impair that right. So he contended that in the US system, a person could choose to give blood as a gift or to sell their blood. In the US, the prospective donor had two options. And because in the UK, the option to sell your blood is denied, then he argued, the freedom of the potential donor is restricted. And since two freedoms are better than one, the system that includes the market alternative, the possibility to sell your blood at a price, must be superior to the one that denies that choice. This is the freedom of the market. That was his first argument. It was challenged, actually, by Peter Singer, who you might have heard of, a moral philosopher and professor at Princeton University. And he pointed out, in fact, there are three freedoms at stake here. The first is the freedom to donate blood for no financial reward. The second is the freedom to sell blood. But the third freedom is the freedom to give blood as a priceless gift whose value hinges solely on the need of the recipient because it cannot be bought. Because it cannot be bought. That freedom was not available in the USA. It was available in the UK. So it turns out, Singer says, that in both the USA and the UK, there are the same number of freedoms too, 
and in each you lose a freedom. So, Singer concludes there is a choice to be made. Do you dispense with the freedom to sell your blood or with the freedom to give a priceless gift? And this is ultimately a decision about the kind of society that we want to live in. And we know on which side most economists stand on that. But his second assumption, Kenneth Arrow's second assumption, I think is more troubling and tells us more about the mindset of many modern economists and their discipline. Arrow argued that altruism and generosity are resources. And like other resources, their supply is limited and therefore needs to be economised. So according to Arrow, markets which rely on people acting purely out of self-interest and selfishness save us from having to use up a restricted supply of altruism. So, if the supply of blood depends only on people's generosity, then there will be less generosity left over for other situations. Now you might think, this is a crazy argument. I'm telling you seriously, this is the way that many economists think. If on the other hand, people are paid to supply blood, then their generosity and altruism will be preserved and left over for other things. This is what Arrow says. Like many economists, I do not want to rely too heavily on substituting ethics for self-interest. I think it best on the whole that the requirement of ethical behaviour be confined to those circumstances where the price system breaks down. We do not wish to use up recklessly the scarce resources of altruistic motivation. Now, he argued that in 1970. More recently, Lawrence Summers, who was economic advisor to both President Bill Clinton and to President Barack Obama in the United States, so he's connected with the Democrats, not with the Republicans, he argued this. He spoke on the subject, what economics can contribute to thinking about moral questions. This is what he said. One of the things that bothers many people of faith about market mechanisms is the idea that there is something wrong with a system where we are able to buy bread only because of the greed or the profit motive of the people who make the bread. Here I would be very cautious. We all only have so much altruism in us. Economists like me think of altruism as a valuable and rare good that needs conserving. Far better to conserve it by designing a system in which people's wants will be satisfied by individuals being selfish and saving that altruism for our families, our friends and the many social problems in this world that markets cannot solve. So, behind modern economics and business lie two views of altruism. The first and most extreme of Ayn Rand who sees altruism as a disease, and the second, like the views of Kenneth Arrow and Lawrence Summers, who do see value in altruism and believe themselves to be preserving virtues for use where they are really needed by promoting selfishness in the operation of economic markets. In many ways, I think the second view is more insidious 
and dangerous because it's not clear that that's what's going on. But to anyone not immersed in economics, their way of thinking about altruism, generosity and love as resources with limited supply, like a fossil fuel that is diminished with every use, is surely bizarre. You don't need to be a Buddhist to see through their view. American political philosopher and professor at Harvard University, Michael Sandel, argues this in his book, What Money Can't Buy. Altruism, generosity, solidarity, civic spirit are not like commodities that are depleted with use. They are more like muscles that develop and grow stronger with exercise. One of the defects of a market-driven society is that it lets these virtues languish. To renew our public not life, we need to exercise them more strenuously. Unfortunately, free market thinking is penetrating more and more deeply into our public life. And in his book, What Money Can't Buy, Michael Sandel gives us an example of how market thinking works and how it is creeping more deeply into our lives. And the example concerns immigration and refugees. And he talks about a man called Gary Becker, who was a Nobel Prize winning free market economist at the University of Chicago. And he intervened in the debate over how many immigrants should be admitted into the United States. And Becker recommended that the United States should simply set a price and sell American citizenship for $50,000 or perhaps $100,000. He argued immigrants willing to pay a large sum of money are likely to be young, skilled, ambitious, hardworking, and even better, are unlikely to make use of welfare or unemployment benefits. So I think all of us would agree with Michael Sandel's view that asking a refugee fleeing persecution to hand over $50,000 to gain sanctuary is callous. But for those of us not going, willing to go so far as Gary Becker would like, there is another market-based proposal. And in this proposal, the refugees don't have to pay themselves to gain admission. What's been proposed is that an international body is established and it assigns each country a yearly refugee quota based on national wealth. So the wealthier the country, the higher the quota of refugees the country is assigned. However, nations can sell and buy these quotas or obligations among themselves. So for example, Sandel gives this example, if Japan, let's say, is allocated a quota of 20,000 refugees per year, but doesn't want to take them, it could pay, for example, Poland to take the refugees. According to standard free market logic, everyone benefits. Poland gains a new source of national income. Japan meets its refugee obligations by outsourcing them. And more refugees are rescued than would otherwise find asylum. And Sandel ironically asks, what could be better? And he answers, there is something distasteful about a market in refugees, even if it leads to more refugees finding asylum. 
But what is exactly objectionable about it? It has something to do with the fact that a market in refugees changes our view of who the refugees are and how they should be treated. It encourages the participants, the buyers, the sellers and also those whose asylum is being haggled over to think of refugees as burdens to be unloaded or as revenue sources rather than as human beings in peril. What this example illustrates is that markets are not mere mechanisms. They embody certain norms. They presuppose and promote certain ways of values of valuing the goods being exchanged. Economists often assume that markets do not touch or taint the goods they regulate, but this is untrue. Markets leave their mark on social norms. And this is the nub of Richard Titmus's original worry about a market and buying in buying and selling blood. In the gift relationship, he argues that it's not just the blood that gets contaminated with the buying and selling of blood. People's minds and values are contaminated. The place in our society of important qualities like generosity and community are eroded to be replaced with selfishness and greed. Human beings and human qualities become commodities, things to be traded just like other commodities. So our modern economic marketplace corrupts our values and attitudes. Another way in which free marketeers corrupt our values is in their naked rejoicing in and promotion of greed. You might not remember this, I do. The most famous statements in support of selfishness and greed appeared in the 1980s, in the mid-1980s. There's a man called Ivan Bursky, who was a real-life Wall Street trader. And there was also a fictional Wall Street trader called Gordon Gecko, played by Michael Douglas in the film Wall Street. Ivan Bursky was a tremendously successful and famous Wall Street trader. And in May 1986, he gave a speech at the University of California Berkeley School of Business in which he said, greed is all right, by the way. I want you to know that. I think greed is healthy. You can be greedy and still feel good about yourself. And according to a newspaper report, people in the audience laughed and applauded. Later that year, Bursky admitted that he had amassed some of his wealth through illegal trading and he went to jail. But then in 1987, the film appeared Wall Street and his words lived on in the character Gordon Gecko, played by Michael Douglas. There's a scene in the film where Gecko stands up at a big shareholders meeting and he says this. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms. Greed for life for money, for love, for knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And late in 2013, London Mayor 
and leading British Conservative politician, now MP, Boris Johnson, declared that inequality is essential to fostering the spirit of envy and hailed greed as a valuable spur to economic activity and called upon the Gordon Geckos of London to display their greed to promote economic growth. More than that, we can see greed at work in the remarkable growth of the pay levels of the chief executives of financial institutions and private companies in the USA and in the UK. In the late 70s, the heads of US companies earned about 26 times more than the average worker. You might think that's quite a high ratio. By 2011, the heads of companies in the United States earned 209 times more than the average worker. A huge rise in inequality, fueled by the ideas about greed. In the UK, it's not so extreme, but top bosses now get pay worth 130 times the average employee's pay. So, to summarise so far, greed is endemic in our modern economic system. Amongst free market fundamentalists, altruism, if not to be completely dismissed, is to be preserved for the more intimate and personal spaces of life, and we should celebrate greed. Now, Buddhism offers a completely different alternative ethical system and worldview to that of the free market. We know that generosity, love and kindness can be cultivated and grown, as Michael Sandel says, just like developing muscles with exercise. We know this. In the Karaniya Metta Sutta, the discourse on loving kindness, the Buddha urges us, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. This is why we practice the Metta Bhavna meditation, the cultivation of loving kindness, to grow and strengthen the virtues of kindness and love and diminish the power of self-centeredness and selfishness. We know loving kindness is not a commodity in limited supply. It's a quality of mind that can be cultivated in meditation and that grows in strength with repeated application in everyday life. We know that the Buddha identified greed, hatred and delusion as the root causes of the human predicament. The Metabhavna meditation is an antidote for hatred and it weakens the delusion that we exist separately from others in the world around us. The antidote for greed is generosity, the practice of giving. 
The Buddha once commented, those who do not praise giving are fools. Contrast that statement with Ayn Rand. In her work, the novel Atlas Shrugged, the hero John Galt founds a utopian community in which the word give is banned from the vocabulary of its members. In the teaching of the Buddha, the practice of giving is the foundation and the seed of spiritual development. In the Pali Suttas, the earliest recorded teachings of the Buddha, we read time and time again that talk on giving was the first topic to be discussed by the Buddha whenever he was teaching. In the Pali Canon, the practice of giving is the first of the ten perfections, and in the later Buddhism of the Mahayana, the practice of giving is the first of the six perfections. The perfections being lists of virtues to be cultivated by all those who wish to gain enlightenment. And Sangharachita, the founder of Tri Ratna, comments that it's as if the teaching is saying, you may not be morally scrupulous, you may not be able to meditate even for five minutes at a time, you may not dip into the scriptures from one year to the next, but if you aspire to lead any sort of higher life, then at the very least you will give. So the practice is not just concerned with the act of giving something to another, but it's more about cultivating a personal quality of generosity, an inward disposition to give, a disposition that is strengthened by outward acts of giving. And interestingly, studies of blood donors show that although the initial decision to give blood might be prompted by a variety of factors, such as the convenience of a nearby clinic or by an appeal for blood, over time, the sense of an inner moral duty and the desire to help or to act on a feeling of responsibility to the community becomes much more dominant. And studies also suggest that learning to give in one context carries over into other contexts. So the cultivation of generosity directly debilitates greed and facilitates a flexibility of mind that helps to destroy delusion. So the individual practices of metta and generosity that we practice and teach to others and that we put into effect in our individual daily lives are a small but vital part of the effort to counter the increasing erosion of moral values by free market economics. But we can do more as a Sangha, as a Buddhist community, to promote moral values and to counter market forces. This is why we talk about and practice the dana economy. A Buddhist Sangha can be a beacon, highlighting that there is an alternative to the selfishness of market fundamentalism that increasingly permeates our society. Dana, we know, means giving, and the basic principle of a dana economy is to give what you can take what you need. Now the precise details of how this works in each Sangha may differ from Sangha to Sangha, but its basic features are clear. A dana economy means that those who come to classes are encouraged to give what they can afford to help enable the spread of the Dharma. And in this way, the teachings of the Buddha 
are open to anyone regardless of individual financial circumstances. And the same principle of give what you can and take what you need applies when it comes to the levels of financial support given to those whose job it is to work at Buddhist centres and businesses operating a dana economy. So the chairperson of a retreat centre or the managing director of a Buddhist business is treated the same as anyone else. They are financially supported according to what they need. They are not paid more because they have a higher position. They give according to the best of their ability. And of course dana is not confined just to monetary giving. People can, can freely give of their times and skills in many ways. So in this way, the practice of generosity in our sanghas challenges selfishness, encourages a culture of sharing, encourages a basic ethos of giving at the heart of the Buddhist community. So before I conclude with some short stories, I want to say this. Earlier I talked about Ayn Rand and I presented what is clearly a right-wing view of altruism that's critical of altruism. But to be honest and balanced and coming from a left-wing background, I have to acknowledge that there is amongst some left-wingers a critique of altruism, or at least a critique of charitable giving. And there's an author called Charles Eisenstein, who's written a book called Sacred Economics. Some of you may know him. But he, he talks about this critique of altruism on the left. And he summarizes the argument, the left-wing argument, like this. Acts of charities, a left-winger might argue, do nothing to change the exploitative, ecocidal system of global capitalism. On the contrary, charity, philanthropy, and individual acts of kindness only perpetuate the system. Because, first of all, by ameliorating some of the worst consequences, acts of charity make capitalism all the more palatable. Because they divert altruistic energy towards relatively innocuous goals instead of towards addressing the systemic foundations of injustice. And because they appease the conscience and make one's own complicity more acceptable. And they even can generate a codependent relationship with the needy in which the charitable enterprise depends for its survival on the very conditions it ostensibly seeks to address. So this is an argument that you can hear on the left. It's not widespread, but it is there. But as Einstein argues, though, we can invert this argument. To focus only on the big picture on the system can be an escape from dealing with the immediate needs of the people right in front of your face. It's just an ideological cover for a failure to look after your brothers and sisters. I think that's a pretty strong argument in response. I must stress, although I have heard this argument put by some left-wingers, I don't think it's that widespread, but it is there. But it does make me think how important it is to work for change 
at both levels, at the more intimate personal and community level and at the level of the system as a whole. Exemplifying compassion and giving at the personal and communal level and working for change at the level of the system as a whole are not incompatible. We need to work to transform both self and world. And the bridge between self and the world is ethics. The practice of the five ethics, ethical precepts, especially in their positive form. With deeds of loving kindness. With open-handed generosity. With stillness, simplicity and contentment with truthful or skillful speech, with mindfulness. These are the bridges between the two levels at which we need to work. The more intimate, personal and communal level and the level of society as a whole. We need to do both. So, to conclude, I like telling stories. I collect stories. Um, and I'm going to tell you three very short stories, two Buddhist and one non-Buddhist, which I find inspiring, and I hope you do. So the first story is from one of my favourite books called Japanese Pilgrimage by Oliver Statler. The book tells of the author's pilgrimage in homage to Kukai, the great Japanese Buddhist teacher, around the temples of the island of Shikoku in Japan in which he brings in wonderful historical and mythical anecdotes. So he tells us about Temple 24 on the pilgrimage. Temple 24 stands at the tip of Cape Ashizuri. And Ashizuri means foot stamping. So it's the Cape of foot stamping. How did it get this name? Well, according to legend, Statler tells us, long ago... An old monk came to the temple with a young disciple to act as his servant. It's said that the young disciple put compassion and generosity above all else. One day, another young monk arrived, seemingly out of nowhere, and joined them for meals. The young disciple always shared his portion with the newcomer. But eventually, the young disciple's master told him off, saying, once or twice is enough, but you must not continue sharing your food so freely. So the next meal, the young disciple shared his food with his new friend for the last time and then told him of his master's decision. And the newcomer then said, such kindness as you have shown me is unforgettable. Please come and see where I live. They went off together, followed secretly by the master, who had become suspicious of what was happening. They went to the Cape, where they got into a rowboat, took up the oars, and headed south, out into the sea. The old monk, the master, cried out, Where are you going without me? And the young monk replied, We are going to the realm of Kanon. We are going to the realm of Avalokiteshvara. And as the older monk watched, they stood up in the boat and turned into bodhisattvas. The old monk stamped his foot in frustration and grief, giving the place its name, Cape Ashizuri, the Cape of Foot Stamping.
That's the first story. The second story is much more modern and recent. It's, it's told by Alva Noe, who's a professor of philosophy at the University of California. He tells how recently, when he arrived at a road toll, ready to pay the necessary cash, his cash was refused with the words, those people in front of you, they paid for you. Noah didn't know the people in front of him. He was puzzled. He writes, then it hit me. A stranger had paid my toll for me. And what's more, he or she had done it for no good reason. Or rather, she or he did it for no other reason than to, as the saying goes, to pay it forward. I couldn't wipe the grin off my face once the reality set in that I'd been the target of a random act of kindness. I could not stop smiling. I felt so happy, so grateful. I felt blessed. I felt as if I were part of a community, a secret community of kind people. I think that's a really great story. The final story, to include, is told by Taitetsu Onu, who was, who was a leading Pure Land Buddhist practitioner in the United States. He died recently. And it's a story about three grapefruits. In 1968, Ono and his family were visiting Japan. He's a, it was an Ameri a Japanese-American, but he was visiting Japan. And they received a gift, just before they left, of three grapefruits. And at the time, a grapefruit was a very rare and very expensive fruit in Japan. Whereas in California, where they lived and where they were just about to return, grapefruits were abundant and cheap. So they decided to give the three grapefruits to the wife's teacher at a flower arranging class where she'd been going. And a few days later, just as they were leaving, they received a letter from the teacher. And Taitetsu Ono describes its contents. The teacher wrote that she shared the first grapefruit with her grandchildren, who were thrilled with the fragrance and the taste of an exotic fruit that they had never seen before. The second grapefruit she peeled and ate together with an old friend whom she hadn't seen for over 20 years, making the reunion a very special event. The third grapefruit she took to a hospital where her best friend was dying of a terminal illness. She hadn't eaten for more than a week, but when she saw the grapefruit, she wanted to try tasting just a little piece. When she finished the first piece, she asked for another one, then another one, until she ate half the grapefruit. The family members watching all this were in tears, happy that their loved one was enjoying something to eat. The teacher thanked us profusely from the bottom of her heart for the three grapefruits. And Ono reflected according to Hua Yen Buddhism, a Chinese Buddhist tradition based on a teaching known as the Flower Garland Sutra, according to the Hua Yen Buddhism tradition, a small act of giving has wider effects in an interdependent and interconnected world. And Anno concluded, no one can measure the effects of a single act of giving for its repercussions are beyond our limited imagination. <laughs>